scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And the few Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1053. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here this morning with us. It encourages us and we hope that we can encourage you. Everybody remember that Family Day is only two weeks away, and what a wonderful opportunity that is for us to be encouraged and think about a wonderful topic, and this year we'll hear a tremendous speaker. We'll hear uh, Dave Phillips, Andrew's father, and he is such a dynamic speaker. Be sure and be a part of that for our own sake and for our family's sake, but also now is the time, if you haven't already, pick up the phone this afternoon and invite your family members, especially those that are not a part of the Lord's Church, and invite them to come and be a part of that great day. Also be thinking about and making your plans to be a part of uh, the time that we'll spend together at Charlie Daniels Park. And you may want to go ahead and mark on your attendance card today. If you plan on being there during that afternoon, that'll just help make plans for that. There's always some fun and games and refreshments. And also we're going to do an outdoor singing there for a little while. So usually it's a couple of hours of just tremendous time that's spent together. And then, of course, we'll come back the evening and close out the day still in the topic of the, of the family. So be sure and be thinking about that. Also, Tuesday morning of the election, uh, the plans are being made right now for uh, as many of you that would like. We'll be here at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we will begin that morning in prayer. And we'll be praying especially for our families, as that is such a tremendous topic of concern as it revolves around this particular election. And so uh, in reference to Amendment Number 1, uh, we'll be praying about that. And so make your plans to, uh, if you're able to, to work that into your schedule with work and school and et cetera, and let's come together and, and let's be sure and begin that wonderful day on our knees in prayer, and then hopefully we can close the day with a great victory, and individually we can thank God in prayer for that. God gives us a lot of wonderful opportunities as a church family, as individuals, and even as an American, and let's make sure that we're good stewards with all of that. You've heard the good news and the bad news. I know some of you probably read this past week about uh, Steve Wynn. He definitely had one of those occasions where he could say, hey, you want to hear something big? You want the good news or the bad news? The big good news was, as someone told it, they were eating supper that night and he came up with the biggest grin on his face and they asked about his jolly mood and he said, I just sold one of my Picassos and and I sold it for $139 million, which is the highest price that, that one has ever sold for. Now, the one that you're looking for there is just, it, it's, it, that's just a uh, self-rendition of Picasso. And, and the one that he sold, translated into English, is the dreamer. And he was real excited about this, and he was telling that group at supper about this because the most that a, an, an artist had ever a painting it ever sold for before that was 135 million and so he'd already gone four million above and he was so excited he told the group he said come by the office tomorrow and i'll show it to you so they come by the office and they enter in and as he's showing them he's described as a man that talks with his hands and so he was showing them the picture and he turned talking to them and then they said they heard the most horrific noise 
And he had punched his elbow through the very center of this $139 million painting, placing a hole the size of a silver dollar. The sale is full. Now, he is going to send it off and try to have it repaired. But can you imagine something so valuable? And he foils it. He runs it. How valuable is a soul? How valuable is your neighbor's soul? How valuable is the soul of one of your family members, especially the ones that aren't right with God right now? How well are you doing at encouraging them to get to know their Savior? You see, their soul's worth a whole lot more than $139 million. The wonderful news is a soul is worth more than the whole world. The wonderful news is a soul lives on for eternity. The wonderful news is a soul can have hope. The Lord died and He wants all to be saved. Now, the question is, are we a part of any kind of bad news? In other words, are there people today that would be a Christian if I spoke up? Or can we say the good news is there's several that have been encouraged. There's several that I pray for. There's several that I do everything that I can do to encourage them. In the book that we're studying through, Mr. Baxter and the Family of God, I love the quote, and I quote him here as we see this next slide, as he says, The primary mission of the church is the same as the primary mission of Christ, the saving of souls. You know, the Lord said in Luke 19 and 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So the primary mission of the Lord... Notice how it's twofold here. Not just to save, but to seek and to save that which is lost. And then Baxter, he he steps back from that and observes with interest. If that's Christ and he's the head of the church, what about the body of the church? And his summary is the body of of, of Christ, which is the church, is the very same in its mission. Our task is to seek and to save those which are lost. The scripture reading that has been capably read for us this morning. Look at that again and think about Christ and think about if this describes our lives individually and if it describes us as a whole. Again, 1 Timothy, uh, the, the second chapter in verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable on the side of God our Savior. He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. How many does the Lord want to be saved? The Lord wants all men to be saved. How many would that be? Well, that's the challenge that lies before us right now. You see, we live in a world that is 6.5 billion in size. Now, how many of that does the Lord want to be saved? As I study this chapter this week, and then as I attend a Latin America missions fundraiser, as many of you did this Thursday night, we were reminded even... At that particular gathering, the size of the world and the growth of it. And that's really a big part of what Brother Baxter is trying to tell us in this chapter. In other words, those that love souls have always brought to attention all men. Do we realize the tremendous challenge we have? Now, as we think about this, look at this next slide, and then we'll come back to this again. When you see here, you see in the 60s, that's when we first time had a world population of 3 billion And now here we are, just a little more than four decades later, and we're six and a half billion. And you can see the projections there. In not too far distant future, we're looking at a projected nine billion. 
Now, as we drop back to this other slide, we, we see something amazing when we start looking at what kind of growth is this? Well, when we consider that the growth in, in just a day's time is 211,000, that's tremendous growth. How could we understand that growth? Well, if we just measured the population of the world's growth in just two hours, that would be about the size of the city of Mount Juliet today. Every two hours, the increase in the world's population. Now, we're not talking about just those that are born, period. We're talking about growth versus those that are born and those that are deceased. The growth every two hours is the size of Mount Juliet. If we took and added up the population of the 50 largest cities in America, Think about this. The 50 largest cities in America. Let me just remind you of just a few of those. We won't read all 50. New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas. If we read midway through the list, we'd see Nashville, Davidson County. If we added up all 50 of the largest cities in America, it doesn't total the growth that takes place in the world in one year. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Friends, when we see the growth in the world, we then come to some kind of grips and understanding of how significant it is that each one does their part to reach out to the lost. It becomes significant whenever we see individuals that are thinking about going to the mission field, that we be the ones that, that encourage them in every way. Because the growth alone is staggering, much less the 6.5 million that are already in existence today. And so when we consider this, this morning we'll begin looking at the works of the church. Some have broken it down and said, well... It's evangelism, and it's edification, and it's benevolence. Today, let's look especially at that of evangelism. Look with me, if you will, to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. I feel like I've been here a lot lately in the last six months, but it's such a powerful verse, and I'd like to use this as, as kind of a, a kicking-off point, if you will. So they, we then drop back to Acts, and we just look at the early church, and we see some things that the early church did in order to reach the world that, that was about them. And Ephesians, the fourth chapter, notice as we pick up in the middle of a sentence in verse 16, as we think about evangelism is my part, it begins with me. Ephesians 4 and 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together. We're going to pick up on that phrase. The whole body joined and knit together. But whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Here Paul writes about evangelism. In other words, the church is growing. Souls are being reached out to. They're being saved. The church is growing. How did it take place? Well, there's several things we could look in this paragraph. There's several things we could even look out of this verse. I'd like to bring your attention to two things. One, he says, it's when the members of the Lord's church are joined and knit together. 
The idea of being joined is the idea of being organized compactly together. In other words, when we have a major task at hand and everybody's doing their own thing, it doesn't take long before someone says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're leaving some things undone and some things are being duplicated. What we need to do is we need to drop back and we need to organize ourselves and we need everybody working together. Friends, that's not new to man's thinking. That's exactly the way the Lord said, I'm designing the church. I want the church to have a structure about her. I want the church to have organization about her. Friends, it's passages like this is the very reason why scripturally we have an SOS. It's an effort to say, let's organize our efforts. Let's make sure that everybody that's willing to work in an area is having that opportunity. And we're not duplicating works, but we're not omitting works. We're not overworking one group or one family or one individual, but we're giving everybody an opportunity to be a part of the work. That's why it's so important for us to be joined. In other words, organized, working together and closely knit. But then notice this that every member does its share. Friends, the Lord wants you and I to bear one another's burdens when it is appropriate. But please note this. The Lord never said, be a freeloader. The Lord never said, hey, I put a lot of Christians around you. You don't have to do anything. They'll do it for you. The Lord says, there are burdens that we need to bear of our own. If I'm a part of the Lord's church, I have a responsibility to love souls, and to want to see souls reached. Now please, let's note this right here. Please note that not everyone's going to be a preacher, and not everyone's going to be a teacher. And so if you're already thinking, oh, this is one of those lessons, and I'm supposed to feel guilty because I can't sit down and teach someone. No. The Lord understands that not everyone has the ability to preach or to teach. And James 3 even says that there shouldn't be many teachers. Well, what's the point? The point is, when everyone does their part, in other words, whatever ability God has given you, you use it for His glory, and everyone becomes a part of the work of the church using their ability, then we see increase. How does this happen? Drop back, if you will, to Acts, the sixth chapter, and, and let's see a glimpse of how we can get a picture of this in the early church. In Acts, the sixth chapter, we see when everyone was not doing their part because there was not a structure in place, there was not an organization in place. And when the organization was put in place, I want to ask you, what do you think happened? In other words, when, when they were not doing things in a structured and organized fashion and they grew to a point that it began to harm the growth, what do you think happens when they were able to put everything in place? Look with me if we will to Acts the sixth chapter and let's run through a few verses here. We see growing pains in verse 1 of the church. Now, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, you see there was growth taking place, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So we have growing pains. Some work is being neglected, and others seems to be taken care of very well, and it's just not fair. Verse 2, then the twelve, talking about the apostles, summoned the multitude of disciples and said... It's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. You see, the point is, one group is not supposed to do everything. Even though they could work miracles, even though they were chosen by God, even though they were the apostles, they said, we're not going to leave our responsibilities to go out and do responsibilities that other people can very well do. 
And so we read this instruction that he, they give in three. Therefore, brethren, seek Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And then they go back to themselves. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Notice that again back in verse 3. They're going to place someone over this business. Now we see a structure being put into place. Those men were chosen in verse 5, and just for this particular lesson, note that Philip was one of those men. And in verse 6 it says, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now what's going to be the result when the apostles continue doing what apostles ought to do? And when these seven men that were leading this work, they did what they were supposed to do. What happens when there's a structure in place and everybody does their part and not one particular group is the martyr? Oh, I have to do everything. If it's going to, friend, you don't have to do everything. If there's someone here overworked, it's probably because you've not asked someone to help. It's probably because you've not trained someone. It's probably because you haven't prayed fervently to grow someone to help you. The Lord never intended for us to work ourselves in the, into the grave and, and be the only ones working. The apostles had no problem saying, we're going to have to find other men to step up and to do good work also. Notice what the result of all that is in 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Aren't those two beautiful phrases? In other words, if we said this morning, what can we do to spread the Word of God throughout Mount Juliet? What can we do to have the number of disciples multiplying in Mount Juliet? We might say, we need to go door knocking. We need to have this great gospel meeting effort. Now, friends, nothing's wrong with those things. But I wonder how many people, if we sat down in a brainstorming session like that, I wonder how long you would have to brainstorm before someone would say, maybe we just better organize ourselves and make sure that every member is doing their part with what we do on a regular basis. And I believe that if we get every member doing their part, the natural result is going to be the Word of God is going to spread and there's going to be more disciples. Friends, the good news is if you and I want to be a part of evangelism, we just do our part. Whatever our part is in the work of the church, when everybody does it, it is so attractive. People notice. Hey, my neighbor was sick, and I noticed how the church that they attend reached out to them. Why, well, the other day I, I was invited to a vacation Bible school. I was invited to a family day. You know, my neighbor is so excited about where they attend. I'm thinking about visiting with them sometime. You know, one of my coworkers. Out of everybody, you can tell the way others talk. There's something different about that particular co-worker. They're also compassionate. I want to learn more about what makes them the way they are. On and on, the illustrations could go with how it makes a difference whenever each member does their part in living the Christian life and serving in the Lord's church as a part of that Christian life. Remember we mentioned Philip? Let's go a few pages further into the Bible. When we look in Acts, the 8th chapter, let's look at Philip again. And by the way, when we read the first few chapters of Acts, we see the church in Jerusalem. And then we go to 7 and 8, and we see the church being spread throughout Samaria and Judea and other parts. And then when we go deeper throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see the church being spread throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world. 
And so we see that the church was always on a growth pattern. But now let's stop for just a moment this morning and say, how is it that the church was growing? Well, we've already seen the importance of every member doing their part. But now let's notice this. Philip wasn't able to stay in Jerusalem. Maybe if you went to Philip at the time that we just read and said, Hey, Philip, where would you like to retire? He might have said, Oh, I hope I can stay in Jerusalem all my life. Persecution grew so great that he couldn't stay in Jerusalem. Now the question is, as he went, what was he going to do? You notice in verse 1 of the 8th chapter, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Look at verse 3. And for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And so these Christians were having to leave Jerusalem. Now when they left, what did they do? They took the word of God with them. Philip just so happened to go to Samaria. What did he do? He took the word of God with him. Some of you won't be sitting in here tomorrow morning, will you? None of you will be. Where are you going tomorrow morning? Are you going to take the Word of God with you? <laughs> now, now, wait a minute. You understand, preacher, I'm not a preacher. I'm, I'm going to work tomorrow. I can't take the Word of God with me. That's interesting because there have been a lot of people converted by influences at work. As a matter of fact, we could ask this crowd, how many of you, before you became a Christian, were influenced by another Christian at work, and hands would go up everywhere. I was speaking this summer at a place, and... And after the services, a gentleman came up to me and he said, Hickman County. They said you were from Hickman County. I said, that's right. He said, you probably haven't heard of a little place called Brushy. I smiled real big and I said, that's home. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, I used to work at Monsanto. This was an elderly man. He said, I used to work at Monsanto. That was over in Murray County, Jack's home. And, and he said, when I worked over there, there was a Banks fella that he sat and read his Bible at break time every day. I began to talk to him and he said, as a matter of fact, there were two of them. It was Edison Banks, which was Ricky Banks' father, and it was Joe Banks, which was his uncle. He said, I began talking the Bible with him. And he said, we began to take breaks together day after day after day. He said, that's how I became a Christian. I learned about Christ and I learned about the church at Monsanto. And I've been a Christian all these years. Friends, we're being watched in our houses we live in. We're being watched from those up and down the street. We're being watched in our workplaces, among people that know us, and even among strangers. And the question is, am I taking the Word of God with me as I go? By the way I live, does my life prove that I'm living the Word of God? By the words that I say, and as Kevin prayed just a few minutes ago, as he said that we would say a good word for Jesus to someone. Friends, if my idea of evangelism and my idea of mission work, that it's only those that we hire and we pay full time and we have them locally or we send them abroad, and that's the idea. Friends, how in the world are we supposed to reach a population with just a few paid salary individuals when the world population is growing faster than the town of Mount Juliet every two hours? 
It's not going to happen. And God knew it wasn't going to happen. And that's why it's never been God's plan. God's plan is for every Christian, every Christian to do their part wherever they go. Now, some of you won't live here five years from now. Maybe you don't have plans for that right now, but I assure you, some of you are going to be transferred. You're going to move. You're going to go just a few hours away to East Tennessee, to a county that doesn't have a church of Christ, or to Georgia, the many counties that do not have a church, or to Kentucky and the many counties just a few hours away that don't have a church. Are you going to take the Word of God with you as you grow, as you go? Isn't it a shame to see those that claim allegiance to Christ's church move to a place where there's not a church and instead of establishing the Lord's church, they join a denomination? What a disgrace. Friends, I want to challenge you. Where are you going? Out of this group, there will be someone in the, just the next year or so that will go somewhere that the church needs to be established. Are you going to take the Word of God with you as you go? One came in just a few weeks ago, Brother Jack Cronk Sr., and he had a huge smile on his face. And he said, I have great news. So what's that? He said, my daughter's just moved, and I forget now the place she'd moved to. He said, there wasn't a church of Christ there, and their family's establishing one this week. What a beautiful thought. That's what Christians have been doing since the very beginning of the church. Wherever they went, they lived the life and they took the gospel with them. But you know, it isn't just an individual thing. Look with me, if you will, to Acts the 13th chapter. In Acts the 13th chapter, you notice this is the beginning of the great missionary journeys. When I mention to you the great missionary journeys of Paul, you might immediately just think a man that's so low, he's out there on his own. Sure, he had a partner every now and then. Friends, it wasn't just a man out there on his own. It was a man that was sent by a congregation. And the congregation, as we read in Acts the 13th chapter, we notice in verse 1 that that church was Antioch. And we see that he was chosen by the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, there's a beautiful way to look at this that Brother Baxter mentions in his book. And that is that from the beginning of time, the church, when it worked collectively to send missionaries, it was the idea first that they had to be selected. Then they had to be sent. Then they had to be uh, supervised, overseen. Then they also had to be supported. Friends, I want to ask you, as a church family, who are we selecting right now to send out in the future? We have tremendous works going on right now in the mission field. Please don't misunderstand me. The work in Latin America, the work in Ukraine, uh, the stateside mission trips, and, and Greece, and the many other places that great works are taking place. Those are awesome. But as we grow, what's the growth going to be? Who have we selected? Which of our young people that have expressed interest in reaching souls have we gone to and said, we not only want to encourage you by word of mouth, we want to help you any way that we can. When have we selected? When have we sent? When have we supervised? When have we supported? Friends,
I remind you again that just since we've been in this meeting, there's been almost 8,000 more people added to the world population. And by the time your Bible class is over, it'll be more than the town of Mount Judah. I hope you're encouraging your young people to grow up to be missionaries. I hope that when you hear a young or an old person say, I just want to go out and and serve in the mission field for a while or for a long while, I hope our response is always, God bless you. What can I do to help you? Because we have a tremendous challenge before us. Brother Baxter gives a modern-day parable, and we shall close with it. It was time for harvest. The field was ripened to harvest. It was a beautiful harvest. He went out early in the morning. He found laborers, and he was quite impressed with the number of laborers that were willing to work in this harvest. He asked them that early that morning to come out to his field. They were honored to be a part of such a harvest. And as they looked across that harvest, they could tell it was going to be a wonderful harvest. But then someone mentioned, did you notice the old rock fence? It's a shame how it looks. We have such a beautiful harvest and such a terrible-looking fence. And so they decided that first they ought to repair the fence on the outside of the harvest. And so they spent several hours going out into the stream and finding new rock and placing them in the places, patching the fence, if you will. When they finished, the fence did look rather nice. And someone said, now let's harvest. And someone said, but do you realize if it rains or if we need some relief from the hot sun, we don't have a shelter. And so they chose a corner of the field and said, we need to build a nice shelter. And so they did. And even as they completed the shelter, they said, this looks so nice, we probably ought to put someone's names on it. Why don't those of us that help build this shelter put our names on it so that plaque can be seen for years to come of the tremendous shelter that we've built? And they said, that's a great idea, and they did. And then someone said, now let's harvest. And they said, harvest? Do you realize it's already lunchtime? Well, we can't go out and work when we're so weak. And after all, we do enjoy visiting with each other. Let's prepare ourselves a wonderful feast. And they prepared a feast like none other. They enjoyed the wonderful meal together. And they enjoyed relaxing afterwards and visiting with one another. And talked about how much it encouraged each other for them to be able to eat that meal together. And then someone said, it's harvest time. And someone said, not dressed like this. Do you realize how dirty we've gotten doing all this building of a shelter and repairing the wall and fixing this beautiful, uh, delicious lunch? We need to go home and we need to get dressed. And they did. And when they returned, they looked down at their tools that were worn. And they said, for a work like this, we ought to repair the handles and, and maybe put some pearl inlays. Why, this is a wonderful work. And they did. They had the very latest and best tools. And then they all said, it's harvest time. And another said, no. See there? The sun is setting. It's too late. And in shame, they walked for the gate. And the owner of the field came back to see the great harvest. His heart fell. He had a beautiful fence, a shelter, and workers that were dressed real nice and had the latest tools. As tears came down his face, they exited beside him through the gate, speechless and ashamed. Friends, 
primary work of Christ should be the primary work of the church. Let's just do our part. When we all do our part, it's attractive. It draws souls. Let's do our part in mission work. Let's sin and let's go and let's do our part. We sing a song of invitation. My part to begin with is my own soul. If you haven't been baptized in Christ for mission of sins, now's the time. If you have, but you've fallen away, now's the time to come back. Let's leave here. Understanding the value of a soul, our very own. But also understanding the value of all souls. If we can help.